Well, good morning, Hillcrest. Good to see everybody today. Welcome to worship this morning, especially those of you that are in Nine Mile today and those of you that are joining us uh, at this hour over at the Spanish Trail campus. It's great to be able to welcome you, but I'm telling you, after that worship service this morning, one thing I can say definitively is that the Spirit of God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ is surely welcome in this place. Amen. Let's put our hands together and welcome our Lord into church this morning. He's already here. He was here before we got here this morning, and I'm really glad that you're here today. If you're one of our guests at either campus, then complete a guest registration card. Take it to uh, your nearest information center. I'd turn that in. There'll be information there and a little gift for you to take home with you today. A special welcome to those of you that are worshiping with us all over the place in our online community, and we're so thankful for the blessing of technology. Speaking of welcomes, let me welcome you again to the second week of what we're calling the Welcome Initiative. I hope everybody by now is aware that we're in a month-long vision campaign, mobilizing our church. Uh, with respect to certain projects, capital projects uh, that we need to address for our future. The Lord has blessed us with much. And the Bible says, to whom much is given, much is what? Required. And so we've got a lot of things that we have to pay attention to just as a means of infrastructure development and maintenance and modernization. And in all of that, we want to be cognizant of what's happening in our community, tremendous growth. We're positioned better now than we've ever been before as a church with the incredible growth that's taking place in our community. It's been a long time coming, and we're certainly excited uh, to see it, though it creates all kinds of issues for our community, for traffic, and it creates issues for us as a church because we want to be able to keep up with that, don't we? And so we mobilize ourselves, and we're doing it around this theme of being welcoming to all people, because our county, growing as it is, you know as well as I do, overwhelmingly lost, 80%, 85% lost, and even fewer than that in church on any given Sunday morning. So the task is great, but the harvest is rich, amen. And uh, the laborers are here, and we want to certainly be ready. We want to welcome folks into spaces inviting for all people. We want to welcome folks into a disciple-making culture once we welcome them into our spaces. And then we want to welcome them into a financially secure future as a part of the Hillcrest family. Now, we've just finished up our first week of small group meetings and there is a method to the madness. We do meetings with leadership groups first before we roll out stuff to everybody as a whole. And so we're kind of feeding this piecemeal in terms of what these 10 identified capital projects, both now and in the future, uh, are looking like. We've got another week this week of small group leadership meetings. Those will finish up uh, this coming Thursday night. Let me just say to those of you that are here this morning who are connect group leaders, your meeting is Wednesday night with me over in the Northwest Hall. So all connect group leaders, connect group spouses are invited to the Northwest Hall. You'll get your own presentation. And here's what's beautiful. We're not going to lock anybody else out. So you regulars with me on Wednesday night, you all come on and come. You'll get a little bit, a little bit of inside information. Anybody else here that wants to come too for that matter. Uh, you can come, 
Uh, not to worry, though, because this time next Sunday, and you're going to want to be here this time next Sunday, I'm going to give you a full multimedia presentation so that everybody can see what that looks like. The only problem with it on Sunday is we won't have time to do Q&A. So if you want to do a little Q&A, come and join us on Wednesday night over in the Northwest Hall. <clears throat> and it's going to be a great meeting and a great time together. And when you come next Sunday, by the way, you will leave not only having seen what you've seen in here, but we're going to give you one of these beautiful, colorful Welcome Initiative booklets that will have all that information in there. You'll receive that when you walk out the door after worship next Sunday morning. And so, boy, you will be in the know. And then you need to mark down Sunday morning, May the 6th, which is still a little bit in the distant future because that's going to be Commitment Sunday where we all come together and mobilize our commitments in order to see these dreams which need to take place uh, become a reality. All right? So enough commercials. Everybody with me so far, say amen. Let's take our Bibles toward that end as we continue to unpack the doctrine of the great welcome to look at Romans 14 for a few minutes, the first few verses of the 14th chapter of Romans. If you were here last week, you know that our scriptural basis for the welcome initiative is taken right from the Bible, also in Romans, but particularly Romans 15 and verse 7, where the Bible says, therefore... Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you to the glory of God. That's the fabric, the basis, the foundational statement by which everything that we're doing and communicating revolves around. We want to be welcoming to our community, welcoming to the lost, welcoming to one another as Christ has welcomed us so that God receives glory through our life concern, love, devotion, and ministry. Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. From Romans chapter 14, I want to talk with you for a few minutes this morning about the subject of unity. Unity in the body of Christ, part of welcoming one another means living together. And living together for the followers of Jesus Christ always means living together in unity. The night before he died, Jesus' longest prayer that ever is recorded in the Bible was uttered, John chapter 17, and it is singular in its theme, unity, unity, unity. Jesus prays for his own unity with the Father. He prays for the unity among his immediate 12 disciples, and he prays for the unity among all disciples that would follow after all of them, including us. So let's talk for a few minutes about what we're calling a house united this morning. Because almost any kind of change, regardless of what the change is, has the potential to be disruptive. And when it disrupts, one of the things that normally is affected is among our most important uh, tools for evangelism and discipleship that we have, and that is, of course, our unity. We never want anything outside of a commitment to biblical truth to ever disrupt our unity. It doesn't have to happen, and it certainly doesn't have to be that way, which is precisely the case the Apostle Paul is making here to the Romans at the beginning of Romans chapter 14. Even a cursory reading of the New Testament letters of Paul will give you an understanding that not everybody in the first century church, now 2,000 years old, uh, completely agreed on every single thing. I know that comes as a shock to you. 
because we're all different. We all have different opinions and different lens points and lens finders and viewpoints and everything else. But that's always been the case in the church and maybe even more so because the early church didn't have a Bible. The early church didn't have seminary trained leaders. You know what I mean? Uh, the Holy Spirit was doing the work almost 100%. So Paul is in the business of providing leadership and instruction as to how to be a church that's effective and mobilizing itself to accomplish the mission of making disciples among all the nations. Let's look at our text this morning. Romans chapter 14, beginning in verse 1. As for the one who is weak in faith, say it out loud. Welcome him. There it is again. But not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself for if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. This is the living, breathing, eternal, infallible, and errant word of the living God. And let all who agree with it this morning shout amen. Now, the Bible teaches that the church is a unity, a, a whole, a total whole. But it's a unity that's formed amidst a great sea of diversity. We are one, but we're different. So we bring different gifts to the table, different parts. The church is like a body, Paul will write in 1 Corinthians 12. We are a total unity like my body, working in tandem, fit and ship shape as it is. Amen. Uh, but sometimes I have a body part that will rebel. For me, it's starting to get, you know, to be the knees and the feet. And, uh, you know, they go snap, crackle, pop whenever I start to run. And whenever I have a body part, even though it's one singular part, it affects the fluidity of my body. And the same is true oftentimes with the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're unified, made up of many different parts, and sometimes... There are dysfunctions that take place among the parts. There are diseases that take place among the parts. And whenever that happens, of course, it affects the forward momentum of the body of Christ. And that's why even though we are unified, and let me just say, we are the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are a unified body because we possess a common Savior, a common faith, a common cross, a common empty tomb. We've experienced a common baptism. We are one whether we want to be one or not. It's kind of like the unity of a married couple, right? You married couples in here, you're one flesh. You are one. And when God looks at you, you know, he doesn't just see, uh, he doesn't just see Jim and Judy. He sees Jim, Judy. 
It's all just one entity to the Lord. The same is true with the church. That's our invisible unity. It's there. But that's not always visible, is it? Sometimes even though we're unified, uh, a, a bystander or a third-party outside observer looking at us may not always see unity. That's for sure true in marriage relationships where God sees you as a unity and you are a unity, but the next-door neighbor hears a bunch of screaming and hollering at 2 in the morning, and he would be hard-pressed to be convinced that living next door to me is a unified couple, even though they are. And so there's an interior invisible unity and there's an exterior outward visible unity. The first just comes automatically. The second, we got to work at it. Amen. It doesn't just happen naturally. And this is why the Bible says in Ephesians chapter 4, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Well, why would Paul say make every effort to keep the unity if we are a unity? Because of the difference. Make sure that what people see outside of you matches the invisible unity that's already on the inside of you, both unity with one another and your unity to God through the Lord Jesus Christ. So we have to work at it. We have to be conscious that there is a world that's watching. And that's what Paul's trying to get the church at Rome to do. This was a church in the most important city on the planet at the time. No city in the world more important or significant than Rome. And there was a fledgling church there. Paul didn't start it. Paul didn't found it, but he was very familiar with it. And he'd heard quite a bit of reports about it. He knew that they weren't always seeing eye to eye. Sometimes they were knocking heads together. And so Paul writes to the church at Rome, and here in this last part of his letter, he begins to deal with some practical matters in the church, one of which has to do with this concept of profoundly being accepting of all people. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ ought to be the most welcoming place in the world. All comers, welcome here. We are not a fraternity where we can at well blackball people. No, all comers are welcome in this place. And we ought to be that. We ought to have this profound acceptance of others. And that's what this passage that we've read really is all about. That ought to be true even when we don't always agree. Or when people don't even have a biblical worldview at all. Let me tell you, there are people that are very welcome here. They don't even know whether or not they believe in God. But regardless of whether or not they believe in God, this ought to be a welcoming place for those kinds of people. Whether or not they see every matter of doctrine, every social issue in exactly the same way that we do. We still welcome, welcome them here. And that ought to be especially true for our brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ. Look again at verse 1. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him. In other words, don't push him aside. Don't shun him. Don't ostracize him. Welcome him. Receive him. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. So there are two kinds of people there in the church at Rome, and this tends to be true in every church then as now. There are people who are more mature and less mature in their faith, particularly among the body of Christ. And we talked a little bit about this last week. Paul refers to them as the strong and the weak. They're both just as saved as each other. But salvation is not the issue. It's how they're functioning in the world that's the issue here. Some are strong, mature. Others, not so mature. 
They're weak in faith. How do you know you're weak in faith? You let everything every other believer do bothers you if it's not in total agreement with what you think is right. Even if the Bible doesn't even address it, you've got your own self-concocted code. This is what I live by, and if you don't live by that, then I make a judgment. That's, that's judgmentalism. And that tends to be a high watermark of those who are spiritually less mature. Because remember, when Paul writes this, he's not addressing at this stage of the game biblical convictions. He's addressing personal convictions. Do you all understand the difference between a biblical conviction and a personal conviction? Everybody with me say amen. Because it's one thing to hold each other to a high standard of biblical authority. And that's always right. But Paul's talking about personal convictions. Christians then as now have had this business of taking these personal convictions and using them as litmus tests or what's sometimes called tests of fellowship. So that as long as you believe this, then I'll receive and welcome you. But if you don't believe it, I'm not going to have anything to do with you. I won't run in relational circles with you. Now, here in Romans 14, Paul doesn't tell us exactly what those personal convictions are. He does in other places. Like, uh, for example, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, the Corinthians were notorious for not being able to get along with one another. And there it's a matter, get this, this is how we know they were Baptist because it was a matter of food. Can I have an amen this morning? I mean, arguing about food. Now, we don't tend to argue about types of food as Baptists. We just argue about how often we ought to be eating as Baptists and when we ought to be eating as Baptists. And some of you all think that the sermon ought to be 12 minutes so that you can go and eat earlier. It's not going to happen like ever until Jesus comes. And so get over that. But there the issue is meat. Can a person eat meat that had been used in a pagan religious ceremony and still be a good Christian? Some said yes, some said no. The Bible was silent on the issue. And they were divided over the issue of what kind of meat to eat. The strong believers said, hey, who cares if it was used in a pagan religion? They sell it when the ritual is over and it's 50 cents a pound. Why, this good stewardship of my money, why wouldn't we do it? The weak believer says, oh, no, I came out of that culture. You ought not have anything to do with it. It's better to go to the market and buy your meat, even though it's $1.20 a pound. And so you had that kind of thing going on. Did God care whether or not they ate the meat? No. It was just a piece of meat. But yet they couldn't see eye to eye on that. This is not a biblical conviction. These are personal convictions. Paul, we don't, that may have been part of the issue here. We simply don't know. Paul is silent on the issue. I think probably what was going on there was more of a disagreement between the Jewish believers and the Gentile believers because Paul does mention diet and he does mention certain festival days or certain days on the calendar. And that's probably a reference to Jewish festival days. And so here's the deal. you got a New Testament church. Many of them are Jews, but they have come to believe that most of the ceremonial, or all of the ceremonial Jewish law for that matter, was fulfilled in the coming of who? Fulfilled in the coming of Jesus. And therefore, there were some of them, they weren't quite as rigid in keeping the Passover as they used to be. And then there were others who went, <gasps> what kind of man or woman wouldn't keep the Passover? Well, we don't have to keep the Passover. Christ has fulfilled the Passover. 
So you had that kind of thing going on. They're debating about diet, Old Testament food laws. You had some there in Rome that evidently were grilling shrimp on Sunday afternoon. <laughs> well, we seem to remember something in Mark chapter 7 about Jesus declaring all foods clean. There's also something in Acts 10 and 11 about that. What God has declared clean, let no man declare unclean. And yet some were being very offended by that. It wasn't really a matter of biblical conviction so much as it was a matter of personal conviction. And some were forming judgments. If you do that or if you don't do that, then, well, you're just not a very good Christian. And you know, it's a challenge. Churches through the years, you all know what I'm talking about. You all been around the block. When you're dug in and when you have an opinion about something, it's really hard not for that not to be seen by other people. It's hard to be a person of conviction and not come across it looking down your nose at others who don't believe exactly the same way that you do on all kinds of matters. Now, let me make very clear. Paul is not talking about being dug in on what we would call essential beliefs because there's some things that we don't compromise on. He's not talking about whether or not Christ was God in the flesh. Amen. There's no wobble room with that. He's not talking about whether the Bible is the literal word of God. There's no arguing with that. He's not talking about whether God is three in one, Trinitarian, or the security of the believer. He's not talking about whether the world was created by a divine creator and based on the fabric of intelligent design. He's not denying the virgin birth of Christ or talking about those kinds of issues at all. He's speaking about what we would call non-essential matters, disputable matters. How about opinions? That's probably a better way to put it. Everybody tracking with me? That's what he's talking about here in Romans 14 and 15. Opinions. Becoming divided over differences of opinions. Not about matters of biblical truth. Again, notice verse 2. One person believes he may eat anything. I know a bunch of people like that, don't you? Amen. While the weak person believes he can only eat vegetables. Well, maybe if that boy had eat some barbecue, he'd change his tune a little bit. Can I have an amen this morning? I sound judgmental like when I say that, don't I? Verse 5, no, go ahead and eat your vegetables. I'll walk in harmony with you. One person esteems one day is better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind about these opinions. And then if you, here's what he's saying, being convinced in your own mind, in your own conscience, if you can do that and honor God and please God at the same time, then you ought to be free to do it. Amen. Can you stand in the presence of God and do those things? Because he says here in verse 6, the one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. And the one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. That's the key when it comes to these kinds of opinions or disputable matters. Can I do this? Can I believe this? And honor the Lord at the same time. Can I do it with a clear conscience before God, giving thanks to God while I'm in the middle of doing it? And if the answer to that question is yes, and it's not contradicted by the Bible, and your conscience is not violated by it, then you have a freedom to do that. Now, all of us know how this has been applied in church life throughout the decades. My grandmother was raised, you didn't put makeup on, you were going to hell. 
You didn't put makeup on. You didn't color your fingernails. That was worldly. You didn't play cards, not even rook in your house at night. Because that was worldly. Can't be a good Christian playing a card game. Uh, Or swimming pool mores, mixed bathing in the swimming pool. Man, that was a big deal when I was growing up in the student ministry of my church. Wearing earrings, getting tattoos, that's a big deal today. Dress, contemporary music. Can I do yoga as a part of an exercise program? Just don't even ask me that question. Just take that to the Lord. You know, for the pastor, it's whether or not I can jog with my earbuds in listening to Bruce Springsteen or the Rolling Stones, and I do. Now, we laugh about all that, but churches have divided over those kind of things. I read about a church recently, true story, bought a piece of property and immediately got into a fuss about what they were going to do with the property. Half the church wanted to use it to build a brand new preschool playground. The other half wanted to use it to start a cemetery. Yeah. And they divided over the issue. You know, if I were there, I'd say, here's the deal. This is all about growth. It's all about growth. Do we want to grow by adding live people or do we want to grow by adding dead people? It's not a complicated question. Now, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, who's one of my heroes of the faith, the great preacher of the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London, smoked cigars probably smoked way too many cigars. He used to get criticized for that. And somebody came up to him, almost, you know, poking him in the chest one time, said, you're smoking no cigars, you're a bad influence. You, you, how, many, how many of those things do you smoke? And he looked at the, at the woman and he said, never more than two at a time, lady, never more than two at a time. <laughs> Here's the thing, was he right to do that? Well, it depends on your perspective. Yes, in one sense, but no He really wasn't in another. See, sometimes the better question about these kinds of things is not, is it right? I mean, there's so many issues that are gray. So the better question, not, is it right? The better question is, is my response to this loving? Eh, It's a better way to look at it. Is this a loving response? Will I be responding, even though I don't see it the same way, will I be responding like Jesus would respond, a guy who ate with tax collectors and sinners and got beat up for it? by the religious establishment. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. I think about the Apostle Paul who's writing this. He, he has a, a long uh, discussion in the scriptures uh, about his right to, to receive an income as a minister. And he goes a great length defending The laborer is worthy of his hire. A church should support their pastors, and I have a right to receive that. But then what does he say? I have a right to receive it, but I'm not going to what? I'm not going to take it. And the reason I'm not going to take it is I'm going to choose to work with my hands because I have a, a, a valuable trade. I know how to work with leather goods. But I don't want anybody 
to ever accuse me of preaching the gospel for profit. And this is the passage in 1 Corinthians 9 where Paul then says, here's the deal. I become all things to all men so that by all possible means some might be what? There you go right there. That's what we're talking about. I become all things to all men that by all possible means some might be saved. I've made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. This is all about the mission. It's all about the message. It's all about others. It has nothing to do with me. It has to do with my effectiveness in my mission unto Jesus Christ. To the weak, I became the weak that I might win the weak. To the strong, I serve as strong in order that I might weak, uh, win the strong. I've become all things to all men that by all means I might save some, and I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessing. Now, that's exactly what we're challenging people with in this welcome initiative because we want to say to our community, it's not about us. It's about you. Without compromising the gospel, which we will never do as long as I'm standing in this pulpit. We will always preach hard and strong straight from the word of the living God until Christ comes again. And without compromising the gospel, that's our mission. We want to become all things to all people that by all possible means, some might be saved. So the important thing when faced with a non-essential or with a disputable matter is not what is the right response. It's not what is the preferred response. It's what's the loving response? What's the loving response? What's the loving thing to do? Because my preferences and my prerogatives in the kingdom are never more important than my duty to love and welcome my neighbor as Christ has loved and welcomed them. You know what Spurgeon did with those cigars? He quit smoking them. You know why? Because he got off a train one time in a part of London and he passed a tobacco shop and in the window was a sign that said, we sell the brand that Mr. Spurgeon smokes. And it was like all of that criticism coming from all those people in his church, he didn't care about that. He just parried it off. But when he saw that sign, he said it was like the Holy Spirit just spoke right to him. And he realized he was being far more of an influence than he ever thought that he was. And he came to the realization that my love for people is more important than my personal rights in the kingdom. And it's called the theology of deference. Doing unto others what you would have done unto you. See, in the kingdom, love for others is always more important than my freedoms. My love for people is always more important than my choices. What's best for the many is always more important than what's best for me. And the larger point here, brothers and sisters, is that believers need to have a profound acceptance 
of other people. That's really the bottom line. We just need to learn to profoundly accept other people, warts and all. I don't like saying turn to your neighbor and say, and I've done that like three times in the last 20 years, and I'm not going to do it this morning. But I almost had you turn to each other and say, you, your, your face is full of warts, but I still love you. You don't have to do that, though. Because we all have, isn't it right? We all have a wart or two. We all have a wart or two that we have to deal with. And so not everybody in the body of Christ is ever going to see eye to eye all the time on every single matter. And that's okay and it ought to be expected because not every single matter about life or opinion or behavior is directly addressed by the Bible. But the key is to learn to be accepting and welcoming rather than argumentative and confrontational when the truth of the living God isn't really on the line. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. Truth is, Christians ought to be the most welcoming people on the planet, and we become that by learning to do two things. Y'all still with me? Say amen. We got to learn to major on the majors, and we got to learn to defer on the minors. And when we do that, what do you have? You have a house united, you have a mission that's furthered, you have a God who's glorified, you'll have a world that sets up straight and notices. And when the world notices the church living in oneness and unity, a church willing to become all things to all people that by all possible means some might be saved, when the world sees that, I can make a biblical promise to you, there'll be some who'll be saved. And there'll be a church that fulfills its mission and grows in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you to the glory of God. This is God's word and all God's people said, amen. amen.